If you ever find the one true love that would live, kill, and die for you, may you never spend 20 years living in a society that makes you think he might not love you anymore because you've got a little gray in your hair. Fucking patriarchy. Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we're here today to talk about Freedom and Whiskey, the fifth episode of season three. Freedom and Whiskey aired on October 8th, 2017, and like last week's episode of Lost Things, was written by Tony Graffia and directed by Brendan Mayer. This is our first episode since the start of season three that isn't predominantly Jamie. It has almost no Jamie at all. No flashbacks, nothing from the history in Scotland, only a brief moment at the end where the timelines converge once again into the present. Throughout season three, I think it's fair to say that the focus has been on Jamie, which is appropriate, as Jamie's story has just been better. Stronger, more dramatic, more active, better. Claire's story, while it had opportunity to do something more interesting with her pursuit of medicine and her friendship with Joe, has been hijacked most of the time either by Frank or Jamie. And while nothing in this episode would exactly pass the Bechdel test, it is finally, eventually, about Claire in pursuit of her goal, and that's when it gets better. Not really good, but better. Unfortunately, that's not until the last 15 minutes or so, so let's go through the stones. I've come this far, more time than back now. In Freedom and Whiskey, a determined Roger shows up in Boston for Christmas with two goals in mind, to see Bree and to give some news to Claire. I found him. Meanwhile, Claire is awesome at surgery and confesses all, or at least most, to Joe. He's Bree's real father. Bree pulls a Rory Gilmore at Harvard and Claire is not pleased. But Brianna has decided to withdraw from Harvard. With goal number one down, Roger moves on to goal number two. For only someone with knowledge of the future could have quoted lines that hadn't been written yet. Knowing that Jamie's alive in the parallel timeline, Claire struggles with her decision because she doesn't want to leave Bree. Bree, however, insists. You gave Jamie up for me. Now I have to give him back to you. So Claire sets to making an 18th century superhero outfit with secret pockets to hold all the stuff she stole from the hospital, and the three have a final Christmas together, complete with the 18th century equivalent of an Amazon gift card. Well, this certainly will be useful in Edinburgh. And with that, Claire makes her way to Scotland, the past, and Jamie's print shop. We open this episode with Claire in surgery, being a badass and risking a patient's life while everyone, including Joe, looks on horrified. But she manages to get that last little bit of necrosis, which I hear goes wonderfully with an oaky Chardonnay, and everyone is impressed. She's good at her job. Her job seems like it should mean something to her. And opening with Claire in her element doing her thing, the very thing that anchors her in time wherever she ends up, being a healer, makes it seem like that's gonna be important here. Like we're finally going to have some sort of something that addresses who Claire is as a person, regardless of what century she's in or what man she's with. Nope. Instead, we move through this episode bit by painful bit, not telling a story so much as just checking off the boxes so we can get Claire back to Jamie as soon as possible. With the biggest box, of course, being Brie, who's freaking out and just quit school, not just school, Harvard, 
But she tells Claire it's okay for her to go, so I guess it's okay. This part of the book has always been weak, and the TV show has managed to excise some of the most objectionable stuff from this part of the source material, but it failed to fix the biggest problem. Claire has no story. A brief narrative theory lecture here. At its most basic, story is a series of events with meaning. But when you're building a narrative, you need a protagonist with a goal who is in active pursuit of that goal and is being thwarted in achieving that goal. That's the conflict, and it's the energy from the conflict that gives your narrative momentum. Then you tie those events together in a way that means something. They are about something. That gives your story its shape. For example, in the battle joined, Jamie's goal was to die. No one would let him die. Finally, Lord Melton throws him into a donkey cart, calls it a day. Jamie wanted death, and he got life. We have meaning. In Surrender, Jamie's goal was to hide and keep his family safe. He couldn't do both, so he had to choose one. The internal goals were in conflict. One side wins, the other side loses. Jamie gives up his freedom to keep his family safe, and we see him being pulled back toward society. Meaning. In All Debts Paid, Lord John Gray's exile brings him to community and friendship in Jamie. He does what he can to help Jamie while at Ardsmuir until he can truly give him a new life. That's about love. Meaning. In Of Lost Things, Jamie tries to live a quiet, peaceful life, but Geneva Dunsany screws all that up for him. He is pulled back into society by his son, and then he has to leave that very society in order to protect his son. In addition to the basic narrative spine of these episodes, there are other things happening. We're seeing Jamie wanting to die, pulling away from the world, until piece by piece the world pulls him back. First, he tries to keep his distance from Jenny and Lallybrock, but he can't do that, and he gets thrown into a new life. Then, he's the chieftain at Ardsmuir, separate from the men, but still engaged in relationships with Murtaugh and Lord John Grey. Then, he's at Hellwater, and he has a son that pulls him fully back into the world, and it is only when he must protect his son that he goes back to home and to Lallybrock. Each stage of his life integrates him further with the world, and more importantly, the people around him. We have a full arc for Jamie spanning over four episodic stories in which Jamie resists the world, but the world pulls him back in more and more with each episode until he's fully alive and integrated once again. For Claire, we have none of this. No trying, no thwarting, just existing. She didn't try to save her marriage to Frank and fail. She didn't seem to care. She didn't try to be a good mother to Brie only to discover that she couldn't. She was a fine mother, or if she wasn't, she didn't seem particularly bothered by it. She didn't try to become a doctor and was thwarted. She got a little misogynistic side-eye, but she ended up becoming a successful surgeon. The only thing she wanted and couldn't have was Jamie, but she let that go. She buried the past. She wasn't in pursuit of Jamie. All of this wasn't great, but it was bearable because the events of Claire's life were just wedged into breaks in Jamie's story, and we were getting a story with Jamie, so whatever with Claire. But now, Claire's events are the episode, and there's really nothing holding them together. It's just stuff happening. Bree quits school. Bree moves out. Roger shows up. They have a party for Frank, and we waste time fighting with his stupid mistress. Like, who cares about this anymore? Bree tells Claire it's okay for her to go, and then... Claire decides to go. And we see her make a bat suit to the Batman theme song, which is just, you know, weird. But hey, at least she's in pursuit of something. At least she's working towards something. And it's kind of awesome seeing Claire in action. So we've got story in the last 15 minutes. But until then, it's just treading water. 
Now, the source material isn't much better, but that's the magic of adaptation. It gives you an opportunity to take the source material and shape it. Imagine if we had taken those events and shaped them into Claire's withdrawal from society as well, only instead of a cave and a prison and hell water, she was hiding in medicine. Imagine if, in the battle joined, Claire had come across Millie, who had been hurt, and managed to save her life by taking off her headscarf and making a tourniquet, and instead of being treated as a hero, she was dismissed by the people there. And we'd ended that episode with her in the hospital with her baby, maybe asking a nurse about medical school. Imagine if, in surrender, Claire had told Frank she wanted to volunteer at the hospital, and Frank discouraged her because of the baby, and she ended up resenting Bree in some way that made her feel like a bad mother. And then Frank is a dick, and Claire decides to go to medical school anyway without his stupid permission, because fuck the patriarchy! Imagine if, in all debts paid, we spent time in medical school with Claire, and she's finally in her zone, but Bree pays a price for it. We had something like that in the book. And that causes a further strain on her relationship, both with her daughter and with Frank. And at the end of that, Claire has to make another choice, and she chooses medicine. Imagine if, in Of Things Lost, we see Bree finally connecting with her mother, and maybe resenting a bit that her mother only seems to be able to connect with her because of Jamie, and she feels unloved for her own sake. How might the scene when Joe calls and Claire chooses to stay in Scotland play out differently? How might Bree's vulnerability have played in that circumstance? Some of this history of tension with Bree and Claire is vaguely informed, which means we're told, but not shown. But man, what if they had shown it? What if we had seen Claire struggle to connect with the world, and then we got to freedom and whiskey? We get Claire and Bree truly reconnecting and settling everything, just as she's about to go. The opportunity was there, but it wasn't picked up, and it wasn't played with. We could have had a real story here, but instead we just got Claire and company treading water until it was time to go back through the stones to Jamie. It isn't Geordie. There is this storytelling trope called the best friend. This is the person whose entire life is about the main character, who has no interests or pursuits of her own, and her only job is to hold up a mirror to the heroine of the piece and make sure the lighting is good. Typically, this job goes to a female friend. Here, it is the unhappy plight of one Joe Abernathy. Now, I like Joe. In the book, it's not so bad. He has a life and interests of his own that go beyond Claire's love life and telling Claire she's pretty. In the TV show, not so much. Prescription for everything. Nothing a cold martini won't cure. (laughs) You may not miss me, but I know you missed your valleys. You got that look? Hmm? The same look you had when you came back from Scotland. You ever gonna tell me what really happened over there? Why don't you tell me about your man in Scotland? You're a skinny white bra with too much hair but a great ass. He'll be in heaven when he sees you, Lady Jane. Sadly, the TV show does not seem at all interested in letting Joe be a character. They just give him a big mirror and tell him to point it at Claire. Does Joe have a wife? Kids? A life? What's it like being a black doctor in the 60s? What are his challenges? You may shake your head and say we don't have time, but we had time to very subtly show Lord John Gray's exile. It takes a well-placed line or two, something we would have had time for if we'd ever made Claire's story about Claire rather than about Frank and all his bullshit. The only scene in which Joe isn't wholly focused on Claire is the scene with the bones. And for those of you who haven't read the books, if you thought that was weird and kind of out of nowhere, that's because it was. 
It's foreshadowing something that comes way later, no spoilers, and it doesn't matter. And the scene has no purpose in the now of the story, which it also lacked in the book. It was kind of cool once you'd read the book and you'd gone back and then you saw the significance, but in the moment, it was just nothing. The thing with foreshadowing is that you can and should do it, but on top of a story in progress. So it doesn't feel like you're stopping the story dead to look at a bunch of bones with Joe. But hey, at least he got to put that big mirror down for a few minutes. It's got to be exhausting carrying that thing around all the time. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. One of the great things about freedom and whiskey is Roger. For one, he's the only one in Boston with a goal, aside from the cabbie. Uh, yeah, 250, pal. He's there to tell Claire about Jamie. He's there to see Bree. He's vulnerable and funny and nerdy. Those troglodytes wouldn't understand the travails of the House of Collins. When Roger's in a scene, it feels like an actual story is taking shape. The romance with Bree, however, seems horribly doomed. History can't be trusted. I mean, history is this guy's life work. It's his passion. And it was her major at Harvard. I know, I keep saying it like that, Harvard. But come on, it's fucking Harvard. I don't care whose kid you are. If you can get into Harvard to study history, you have to be at least a little bit serious about it. And it's okay for the person you're with to not be into all the same things you're into. But she's actively not into it. They're in that space at Harvard, and he's entranced, and she's like, history's stupid and poops. Imagine if Jamie had looked at Claire and said, healing's for losers. I mean... He'd say it in that Scottish accent, it would still be sexy, but my point remains. That's not how you build a strong relationship, y'all. There has to be something more to breathe than just being beautiful to make us think Roger shouldn't get on the next plane out of town and get down on one knee in front of Fiona pronto. But later, when Bree breaks down with Roger after Claire leaves, when she makes him lobster rolls and Boston cream pie, and when they curl up together on the couch to read a Christmas carol, yeah, okay. I'll give you one more shot TV show, but you'd better do something decent with Brie, because seriously. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. So Claire finally makes her decision to go back, and things start to move, and we get a solid mix of good and weird when she's making her outfit with all the secret compartments. I love her dedication to the job. I love her ingenuity. I love her capability. I love her plan to hide all her stolen hospital booty in her voluminous skirt. All awesome. But, okay, the Batman theme is just weird. I mean, it's weird. Like, we've been doing different things with the music this season, and while some of it has struck me as a little odd, overall, I've liked it. But Claire sewing to the Batman theme is just... Yeah, I don't know. But then she leaves Brie, and that's an affecting moment between them. She gets in the cab, and we get the first clarification all season that has been about real insight into the character, as opposed to just voicing over what we're already seeing on screen. Even now, when I see a puddle in my path, my mind half halts, though my feet do not, and I hurry on. And then she steps into the 18th century street and it feels like we've been riding on a car that's been taking a corner on two wheels and then it suddenly lands and the world feels straightened out again. And there's Claire in Edinburgh in the 18th century out of the terrible 1960s eyeshadow and bouffant hair and once again, where she belongs. We see her go into the print shop and honestly, I thought we were going to end there with the door dinging the bell and going to black like the teasers have been doing since before the season began. But when she walks through the door and continues into the shop, when she sees Jamie, 
when she speaks. It's me. Claire. When I first heard they were going to be making a TV show from Outlander, I had two scenes that I desperately wanted to see realized on film. The scene at the Stones, when Jamie takes Claire to Craig Nadoon after the witch trial and she chooses to stay, and the print shop. The choice to start the next episode at the end of this one, to go into the print shop, to have Claire see Jamie and Jamie see Claire, and then to cut to black on his faint? Huh. On the one hand, I want it. I want it. I want it now. On the other hand, to get a little bit of it and then have it interrupted on what is essentially a pratfall? I don't know. Tonally, it's just, it's off. But as a book reader, knowing what we're about to get into after this reunion, no spoilers, but get used to shit being weird. It's been a long time since I first experienced Outlander, since all of these events were new to me, and since I didn't know what was coming next. I read all of it, except the most recent book, and I've been through the first three books many, many times, and I'm trying to keep that perspective away from the TV show. But I can't seem to separate it out, so I'm going to have to apologize in advance. While I promise I won't spoil any specific events, we are at the brink of a transitional space in Outlander where we step out of one kind of story and into entirely another. And I kind of want to address that. Remember that feeling of the car taking a corner on two wheels? Get used to it. And the thing is, if you've been watching the show since the beginning, you're fairly used to this. We get wild romance in the first part of season one, desperate adventure, violence, and trauma in the second half, a spy story in the first part of season two, and then a tragic war story for the second half. Similarly, the first almost half of this 13-episode run of season three has been a brisk saga, if such a thing can exist, through 20 years of history. We've been a skipping stone on the water, and now we're about to land on the other side of that river in a place that's strange and interesting, but definitely different. Underlying all of these stories, of course, is the romance between Jamie and Claire, the love that defies death and time and history. This is the thing that pulls it all together, and without spoiling, it will continue to be the thing that pulls it all together. Freedom and Whiskey is laden with the thankless task of being the last hop of the water-skipping stone, the last bit of the connective tissue between what was and what will be. As we move forward in the story, I just want to say that you can hold on to Claire and Jamie, kind of like that little handle above the window in the car. When we go up on two wheels, just grab on to Claire and Jamie. It'll be okay. I think it'll be okay. I didn't get quite as many responses this week asking for your Outlander MVP as I did when I asked about Frank and Lord John, so I'm getting a sense of what you guys want to talk about. The men. I get it. Message received. But thanks so much to those of you who did send in videos, and let's find out who you love the most in Outlander. Hi Lonnie, this is Mandy Kay, and this week your question was who is our Outlander MVP? And I'm really surprised that mine is actually Sam Hewen. 
you know, I wasn't a big fan of his the first couple of seasons, and that's really just because I had listened to the audiobooks so many times that I had a very distinct portrait of Jamie in my head already, and Sam Hewen just kind of didn't live up to that. But this season, his performance has just been spectacular. His ability to convey emotion without speaking a word has absolutely blown me away. My Outlander MVP is Terry Dresbach. If that surprises you, you should know that in the last 24 hours, I have had no fewer than three extremely heated debates about superhero costumes. She has to keep track of clothing across, I don't know, a dozen social strata, three countries, and at least three or four time periods. That's incredible. It's a Herculean task. And so at the end of the day, who's going to make sure that Lord John Gray looks handsome and sad in his red coat? Who is going to make sure that Claire has late 60s mom hair? Who is going to make sure that Frank has the right shade of tweed in order to look the most like a prat? I think it has to be the shit shoveler in this most recent episode. I wasn't sure what I was going to say, but I think I would vote for um, the writers. And of course, Diana Gabaldon wrote the whole series, and so it would not even happen if it hadn't been for her. I've been watching it with my best couch buddy. Say hi, Darth Vader. His favorite and my favorite is Katrina Balfe. She's really carrying the show on her shoulders. Obviously, Claire is the most important character. He has an infinite bag of tricks, it seems to me. Dagger-eyed stares, pensive looks, She's sexy as hell, but she's also strong. She does a great job of being out of her element, but also being filled with enough capability that you buy it when she outsmarts these guys. But I'd like to nominate Bear McCreary for the music. I love, I love his music. He's so um, careful to, um, look at mood and I know that the final um, song of the last episode which was um, Bob Dylan's a cover of Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall is controversial not everyone liked it I'm in the category of people who really liked it um, and I appreciated a comment that someone wrote on your chipperish forum uh, linking that song um, I guess the original of the song that Dylan wrote in um, the 1960s was kind of loosely based on a, um, an Anglo-Scottish sort of borders area call and response um, ballad, a lament. And I don't know if um, McCreary knew that, but it tied in to um, an older tradition in that sense. And to me, it connected the losses on both sides of the, the divide of the stones and time. Thanks again, everyone. And now for this week's question, Roger, great Scotsman or the greatest Scotsman? Also, what the hell with Brie? What do you think? Send your Google Drive or Dropbox link to Lonnie at chipperish.com. That'll do it for today. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 3, Episode 6, The Print Shop. Okay, it's not called The Print Shop. It's called A Malcolm. But I don't care, because The Print Shop. Slangeva. Sex and Whiskey is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a Chipperish Media supporter.